0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 90 as we continue our time in one of the most powerful prayers that really we have recorded in all of Scripture, that is Psalm 90. The life of the hymn writer, Isaac Watts, is a very interesting story for you to understand. Though it's well known, he is, for his writing as hymns such as When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, as well as the holiday favorite joy to the world, the history that led Isaac Watts to write such hymns is not as familiar as the hymns themselves. It's said that at a very early age, Isaac Watts showed exceptional aptitude for study. He learned Latin at the age of five. He learned Greek at nine. He learned French at 11 and Hebrew at 13. And for 12 years, his mother taught him the writing of rhyme and verse. And it was there in his early years that Isaac developed a habit of rhyming his everyday conversation. So much so that the tendency became very annoying to his father. Being very irritated with young Isaac's incessant rhyming, one day his father severely scolded him for his habit and young Isaac responded with, oh father, do some pity take and I will no more verses make. (laughs) So thankful for all of us, his father showed no pity and Isaac Watts continued to rhyme. In fact, his Most famous lyric, perhaps, illustrates his aptitude for rhyming in the poem that he wrote that's a paraphrase of the psalm that we are studying, Psalm 90, and I think you know it well. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. So though those words might be very familiar to you, the verses that we're going to study this morning from the Scripture that they are based on may not be as familiar, but hopefully so after this morning's message they will be. And I say that because today we come once again to our study in the Psalms, in this Lord's Day, finding ourselves continuing what we started last Lord's Day in Psalm 90, namely the prayer of Moses, the man of God, and the message that he has for us. And although Moses didn't necessarily write this prayer psalm as an outline for us to follow, truth be known, it really is important for us to recognize the different elements of prayer that we see here because there are some very undeniable truths that he goes through as he prays that would be uh, very profitable for us to take note of. When Moses came to the most important time of his life, when Moses came face to face with his sin and death and disappointment and defeat, it's these truths that we see here in Psalm 90 that captivated his mind before he prayed. These are the thoughts that he had that led him to prayer that actually are a part of his prayer where the man of God speaks to God himself. And so here in Psalm 90, what we have, I believe, are five undeniable truths, five undeniable truths that just consumed Moses and consumed his mind and consumed his heart in prayer and meditation and reflection and can act as a model for our prayers as well. And these five truths are, and I gave them to you last time, but I'll state them again, the eternality of God is evident, the brevity of man is certain, the severity of sin is obvious, the fragility of life is eventual, and the necessity of prayer is vital. And to say them in a more simple way, be helpful for you, he now rehearses how God is transcendent, man is transitory, sin is tragic, life is temporary, and prayer is treasure. Prayer is treasure. We're going to see how he unpacks that for us this morning in all the verses. And what I hope, and this is key, is the fruit of our time together in this psalm is seeing how Moses aligns his thoughts about God and man and sin and life that culminate in a prayer of incredible faith for the future of ourselves and our families. That's really the focus that we have this morning. Now let me begin by just saying that if you've spent any time with us at all as we've been going through the Psalms, you know one thing is evident as we go through the Psalms themselves, and that is context is king. Context is king. In other words, regardless of where you find yourself in Holy Scripture, there's one overarching guideline that is our central tool for understanding God's Word, and that is that context of any given message, meaning the way a passage is written and the order in which it is written, is our most valuable guide to understanding the meaning of what is written. That's going to be our thesis. And so when I say context is king, then you could define context as the circumstances that set the situation, the the circumstances that make the statement that you're about to look at or the idea uh, fully understood and assessed by what's going on around the words. So when we are to read the narratives of the Bible, you're to read them as you would any narrative in literature, knowing that the events that precede the reading occur in a certain order, as well as the events that that go at the end of what you're reading, the story unfolds in a certain way. So first comes the beginning, and then comes the middle, and then comes the end. And the way that the beginning, middle, and end of a story occurs is purposeful and meaningful and essential. For the way that we understand what the author means by what he's saying. Same way could be talked about poetry. Uh, we find ourselves in a wisdom book like the Psalms, and these are lyrics of songs that the ancient Hebrews sang out loud in their worship, and there's poetry in these lyrics. And these are to be understood also with a certain ebb and flow, a logic to them, so that when we find any particular piece of poetry, we understand it. There's no hard and fast rules in poetry. You can be pretty certain that there is, however, a flow, again, of logic and emotion that helps us to understand what the meaning of what is written by the context in which it occurs. And I I want to tell you this because there's another important contextual clue as you understand Scripture. And so this goes for all Scripture, but particularly for what we're going to learn today. And that is, so often we can be helped by the when and the why of a particular passage. The when meaning, if we understand uh, what the circumstances are, when it was written, why the poet wrote what he did, then we can even be more certain about what it is that's the meaning of the writing itself. So I know that probably makes sense. That's how you read anything, but to really enforce that when you read Scripture, because this is the case of the Psalms. Sometimes we are given a hint as to what the reason is for the writing of the Psalms, it's usually in the title or what we call the superscription of the Psalm. Superscription meaning that what is written above the text, above the script, the superscript is this title. In some of our Bibles, the publishers or translators have given a phrase or some kind of summation that's not actually uh, uh, inspired by God, but the superscriptions are inspired, the headings that come with not all but many of the Psalms. So why am I giving you this little hermeneutical lesson, you might ask, because? Psalm 90 is a, It has a superscription that tells us three important details as we open this up about the psalm. First, remember it says the prayer of Moses, the man of God. Number one, it tells us it's a prayer. Number one, that this is a prayer. Number two, it tells us the author of the psalm, which is Moses. And then it tells us the qualifications of the author. He's a man of God. So it's a prayer Author, Moses, qualifications, man of God. So even though it doesn't give us as much information as Psalm 51, let's say, Psalm 90 gives us a very helpful guide to understand how we're to grasp the lyrics that are here before us. It's a prayer, more on that in just a little bit. It's written by one of the greatest men in history, Moses, and it's an offering from Moses in his role not as an intellect or a scientist or a political leader or a pioneer, though he was namely one of all of those in some sense, but he's coming from the perspective of the man of God to the people of God to zero in on the truth of God. So that's our first clue in the context of what we're to understand here in Psalm 90. And next, if you're still following here, Because the Holy Spirit has given us this insight, now because of that superscription, we're able to target even more specifically what are the circumstances that create the writing of this? Why did Moses write what he wrote? What is it that compelled him to do that? And so to understand maybe a little deeper those elements, and this is kind of like also learning how to do Bible study as I preach, you want to start to examine the lyrics in the prayer To see that there are separate thoughts in this lyric that allows us to see these separate truths that I'm talking about that Moses unfolds for us. And those five truths are undeniable. They are undeniable truths that strike us in the heart. And I'm going to read the psalm for you. Actually, let me do that. Yes, I'm going to read the psalm for you, and we'll then unpack it a little bit at a time. This is, just so you know, the Song of Moses, part two. Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it blossoms and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it withers away and dries up. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all of our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long will it be? And be sorry for your slaves. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us ac- glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us and the years which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your slaves and your majesty to their sons. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish for us the work of our hands, establish the work of Of our hands. Now, if you were with us last time, you may know that we spent the majority of our time in this Psalm, Psalm, prayer, Psalm, in a recollection that says that Moses doesn't really, in this prayer, request anything from God. It's interesting because He doesn't do what we so often do when we pray. We just did as as we had a prayer from Randy this morning. We immediately bow our heads and we plead our case and we ask God what it is and we have it filled with supplications and thanksgiving and all of that is right and proper. But what's interesting in this psalm, this prayer of Moses, is that it isn't until verse 12 through 17 that he begins to pray in the way that we recognize prayer. He starts to, in fact, make requests first from 12 and then 13 and 14, but the beginning verses from verse 1 until 11, even verse 12 that we investigated last time a little bit, has this idea of instead of requesting things from God, echoing back to God things about God. And I think you're going to see that that's really a large portion of this psalm, and it's going to take up a significant portion of our time today as we go through just the first two truths that I listed for you of the five so far. So if you're taking notes, just know that the first undeniable truth that consumes Moses's prayer starts with this. Number one, that to Moses, the eternity of God, the eternality of God is evident. It's evident. And why do I say that? Because that's what verses one through two teach us. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In other words, God is transcendent. God is everlasting. Before he begins with petitions, In this prayer, before he starts to list out all the needs of the people of God, he starts by echoing back to God what is true about God before he requests anything from God. Do you see that? It's very important that you start with that basic starting place. And in this way, he's, in a sense, having a perfect alignment with our Lord Jesus Christ when he taught the disciples to pray. Jesus didn't begin the Lord's Prayer, as you know, with pleadings and petitions, but instead he even begins his teaching about prayer by saying that we begin, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, the pattern is the same. When our hearts are full of need and our eyes are closed in prayer, it is very wise for the believer to not rush to the Savior with request necessarily hand over foot, but instead to settle his or her heart to focus their thoughts and to remind themselves first and foremost of the most undeniable truths that shape our thinking. And that's namely, remember who the God is that you are praying to. One of the most often quoted sayings of the late A.W. Tozer relates to this in that Tozer is known very well for saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself, and the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like, end quote. So Moses, the man of God, starts his prayer to God by speaking about God. That is a very appropriate way of approaching it. And what does he say about God, you may ask? Again, verses 2, that God is eternal and God is transcendent. That God is eternal and God is transcendent. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now here, Moses speaks of God's holy otherness, his separateness from everything else. He speaks of God's eternality, God's creativity. Both are addressed alongside God's amazing unchangeability and his stability. So let me kind of unpack what this means for you and, and follow me as I, I kind of tell you what it is that's on his heart. Moses begins his prayer By recognizing something that is essential and yet so oftentimes just passed over, namely that the nature of God, the true God, the only living God, the creator of heaven and earth, the saving God, the same God that Moses encountered in the burning bush, the God who introduced himself to Moses by saying, I am that I am The God who has always been, who always will be, who never changes, is the God to whom he is addressing. And it's here that Moses speaks to the Lord in prayer, but not by calling upon his covenant-keeping name of Yahweh. He will do that later in verse 13 of this same psalm. But here he begins the prayer by calling upon Adonai, Lord, our dwelling place. In other words, he starts by saying, God, you are our home. God, you are our refuge. God, you are our personal security, our shelter. But also notice that this prayer is a corporate prayer in that the prayer speaks in the plural, not the singular. So the prayer is on behalf of the people of God, from the man of God, a prayer of meditation on behalf of Israel, and not just on behalf of Moses himself. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves here, why? Why this distinction? Why this designation? Why all the emphasis on God being the dwelling place and not some other aspect of God's character? At the end of verse 2, he will emphasize God's eternality. But here, the emphasis is on God's security as like the home base of our souls. So why is Moses doing that? Well, first, let me say that we actually don't have any more information about this psalm other than what's in the superscription that might lead us to a better understanding of the literal historical facts behind the authorship, but we do have internal evidence that you can go through in the body of the psalm. So if we pull the camera back and we start to look at this psalm, we can make some observations that I think might help us place the reason why Moses is saying what he's saying here. I think that's so important. If we can grasp the historical reasons behind why the author himself is speaking, it helps us to unpack the truth of what it is that he says. First, just by way of observation, if he speaks of God as their dwelling place, then perhaps they feel like they have no other dwelling place but God, which would take us back to the Israelites roaming in the desert for 40 years being a generation is 40 years. So generation after generation, they had no home. Second, we see the focus in verse 7 being consumed by God's anger, having his wrath upon them for their sins, which was certainly true in the desert as they roamed. And then third, there's a theme of man's lifespan being short and being held accountable for the years that are evil. Verse 15 And the reference to years again takes us back to the 40 years' wanderings in the desert. So clearly, this is a psalm about the time when Moses led the Israelites through the 40 years of God's discipline for their rebellion against him at Sinai. But the question is just when? When was it prayed? When was it written? When did these events actually set the stage for this psalm? And again, we can't be certain, but one of the most fascinating possibilities that I want to bring before you is Numbers 20. Numbers 20. Now, I say that you don't have to go there. I'm going to explain to you just for the sake of time. But it's there in Numbers chapter 20 that you have in one chapter the lifespans of both Moses' uh, sister Miriam and brother Aaron being cut short. In that same chapter, you have the sin of Moses himself striking the rock, as we will look at in a moment, and preventing him from going into the promised land. So Numbers 20 looks like a very good historical backdrop for our psalm today. As commentators try to make clear, nearing the end of the 40 years of wandering, the Israelites came to the desert of Zin, and there was no water there. The community turned against Moses and against Aaron. Moses and Aaron, went to the tent of meeting and they prayed. They threw themselves before the Lord in prayer. And God told Moses and Aaron to gather the assembly and to speak to the rock, for again, there was no water. And that water would come forth when they spoke. And so Moses took the staff and gathered the men and kind of in anger, it seems, Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? And then Moses hit the rock twice with his staff, according to Numbers 20, verse 10 through 11, and water came from the rock just as God had promised. But immediately God told Moses and Aaron that because they failed to trust him enough to honor him as being holy and doing what he commanded, which was to speak and not to tap, that they would not be able to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. So this seems, I know, harsh to us, but when we look closely at Moses' actions, we understand most obviously he he disobeyed a very direct command from God. God had commanded Moses to speak. Instead, he strikes the rock with a staff. Earlier, he had brought forth uh, water from the rock. He instructed Moses to strike it with the staff in Exodus 17. But not here he didn't tell him to do that. He said, speak. So one side lesson there is God is very serious about everything he says. And the time and place of how he says it and when he says it is imperative. God wanted Moses to trust him, especially after the wandering for all those years. This is at the very end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert. And Moses didn't need to use force. He needed not to introduce himself as we, meaning him and Aaron, are the ones that you've sinned against. It needed to be God and God alone would take the credit. So this is a monumental chapter, as I'm sure you can tell. So in the beginning of the chapter, again, Numbers 20, Moses' sister Miriam dies. She just dies. There's no evidence about it. There isn't any explanation. There's no reason why. She's just dead. No warning, no hint of it, anything. She just dies like everyone else. And then there's this lack of water, and the Israelites complain against Moses, and they complain over and over again, so much so that, of course, Moses taps the rock twice to get the water in frustration. And then even though the wilderness punishment, if you will, is almost over, Aaron, whose staff was used at the rock, who had attempted to usurp Moses' leadership back in the day along with Miriam, is not permitted to go into the promised land either. And so he dies and God tells him he's going to die and he goes up to the mount and does so. So in one chapter, of, of, of Numbers chapter twenty, you have desert wanderings and rebellion. No home for the Israelites. Death sentencing for rebellion. Moses humility given over to pride, and God guaranteeing that Moses would never end the promise, enter the promised land. So all of that. Think with me real quick. So no place to dwell. Life being cut short of the people he loves. God triumphing over the rebellion of his people all within the backdrop of Psalm 90. And so as far as I can tell, that is most likely the reason that he wrote this psalm. Now, with all of that in mind, look back with me again at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our Israel and himself, our dwelling place From generation to generation, 40 years at a time, 40 come and 40 go. And we've seen this over and over at verse 2. But before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Profound truth about God's transcendence here, spoken with the weight of the world on Moses' shoulders as he writes All of these things happen. Listen to this. All of the wonderings and complaining and the rebellion and the confusion, the loss and the death of loved ones, all of these things motivate Moses to write and to pray. But he doesn't start in verse 13 with the request. He starts with worship. He starts in verse one with worship. And I really want you to think about this, that before Moses prepares his request to God, before he speaks of the petitions that he will offer up, he begins by confessing out loud before the holiest of holy. He begins to tell the everlasting God who he knows will discipline him for what he has done, knows that he is preventing him from going into the promised land, that this God is permanent, and and eternal and never ceasing and is a home for the homeless, for the people of God, which we know is true even today for all people who love God. He is our home. This is massive. And what Moses does then is provide for us this inspired example of prayer, what should fill the hearts and the minds of all who come to the Lord in times of disappointment and dying and dilemmas, namely that he wants us to wait and to ask for what he wants first by acknowledging that we know what is true about God. We want to focus our thoughts first in this model on who God is before we plead with God for what we need. And first, he says, let's understand God's transcendence. When everything else is crowding your life. When all the other anxieties of this world come trying to kind of broach their way into your thinking He says, no, first and foremost, before you even ask, pray. And this is how you pray. And he uses God's transcendence as the focus. And I I use the word transcendence because I'm doing so to express the idea that God is uncreated. God is eternal. God is outside of creation and yet close enough to be our shelter. Though he is outside of everything, he is outside of eternity He is our home. He is the divine roof over our sinful heads. So let's just start from the end of verse 2 and look at this together. God is from everlasting to everlasting. What an interesting statement that is. What an interesting way of expressing such an undeniable reality that says, God has always been. To put it another way, if the idea of everlasting is eternity, if the idea of everlasting means forever, then this idea of everlasting also takes on the state of being that always has been and always will be. So to speak of, of it as the idea of being everlasting That from everlasting, meaning it had a beginning, and to everlasting, meaning that it has a continuance. It's just a literary way of dividing up eternity so that you can look at the fact that God has always been from eternity, past, to eternity, future, The idea is you have always been God, you always be God, you always were God that we worship, even before you created the hills and the world, and you will always be the God that we worship. This is just Moses' way of speaking about God that sets him apart from the transitory nature of man that he's about to acknowledge in a moment. But before that can come, his prayer confesses to God that you, O God, are wholly different, and yet you are accessible. You are wholly different, everlasting from everlasting, yet you are the shelter. Now, theologically speaking, we're going to do a little uh, seminary thinking here together because I think it's pretty fascinating. The Bible portrays God as the transcendent creator who is also intimately involved in the world that he has sovereignly brought about. As one theologian puts it, if we conceive of God as infinitely other, we must at the same time envision him as infinitely close. If we picture him as wholly transcendent, we must at the same time allow for the truth that he is radically imminent in the sense of being present with us and for us. That is also what Moses is saying. So when the imminence of God is mentioned, it has to do with the creative presence in all of creation that God has. Though he is from everlasting to everlasting, he is also the shelter of his people. For example, Jeremiah twenty three twenty four, the Lord declares, Can a man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see? Do I not fill heaven and earth? His divine imminence, he is always present, signals God's closest and most intimate relationship with the world, but it doesn't compromise his transcendence. Let me say it just one other way. A theologian said he's never imminent without being essentially transcendent, just as he does not remain transcendent without making himself for our sakes imminent. So speaking of God in that way as from everlasting to everlasting is speaking of his eternality, his transcendence. But in verse 1, the first part, he speaks of God as being the dwelling place for his people so even though he is other than us, he's still our home. He is the home for all who are homeless. And how do we understand what Moses is saying here in regular terms? Well, see if this helps. It's as if he's saying, as I have led the people of God out of slavery through many miraculous journeys, we have never had a home. We have pinched our tent here and there. We have wandered around a region that's not our home We are waiting for our rebellious hearts to submit to God that lead us day and night. But all of these years, generations of families have come and generations of families have gone. But when I think of God, the same God who led us out of our troubles, and I remember how He has always been God, and I came to realize that no matter where we are, no matter how long we roam, our home we have always been looking for is in God himself that God himself is our dwelling place. He was there from the beginning. He has always been there in the middle, and he will always continue to be there in the end. We may come and we may go, but he is forever. There was a football game on yesterday, and the stadium was incredibly packed with people screaming for their team. And while the game was taking a break, the camera crew pulled away from the spectators and showed the audience at home in a stadium that had been built at the seat of an incredible mountain range. And it appeared like this massive edifices of blue and black rising up through the the winter clouds that just hung around its peaks. It was breathtaking. That stadium filled with a hundred thousand people will disappear one day. And all of the people who are shouting and celebrating at the top of their voices will disappear one day and be quiet, but those mountains will be there. And no matter what the year, and no matter what is going on around them, the mountains remain. God is before that. God is before the peaks when they rose. God is before the clouds and the grandeur as they appear. And God is after that when everything is gone. After the stadium is taken away and the people are forgotten and the mountains melt in the inferno of judgment, God is still there. My father, many years ago, would take us to a place where he grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the place was the subject of so many of the stories that he told me as we were growing up, all of us as kids. But once we got to the place, he pointed to a freeway on-ramp Because instead, right there underneath where the cars were lined up waiting to go their turn was the home where he used to laugh and cry and pray and dream. But look at it now. It was gone. My father-in-law, Lori's father, likes to talk about how everything in Santa Clarita just a few years ago was farmland. And he likes to point out how all the shopping malls over here or the neighborhood of houses over there were all, just a few years ago, non-existent when he worked for Lockheed. But look at it now. And we have all seen, even since the pandemic, have we not, the offices and restaurants and businesses that we used to visit regularly are now kind of strangely empty and gone. So now it seems it's our turn to be able to tell our children there used to be a place there, a few years ago, a restaurant we love to frequent, but look at it now. So Moses is saying that generations come and generations go. Babies are born, families are formed, and even though everything in this world is transitory, he says God himself remains, and that is the true home for the believer There is a second undeniable truth that consumes Moses' prayer, a second undeniable fact. Not only is the God of our creation eternal, the eternality of God is evident, but number two, the brevity of man is certain. The brevity of man is certain. He says this in verse 3, You turn back man into dust and say, Return, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night you have swept them away like a flood they fall asleep in the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew in the morning it blossoms and sprouts anew toward evening it withers away and dries up now you see here a dramatic shift do you not in this with Moses' prayer in that and we move away from the transcendent nature of god now to the transitory nature of man god is eternal but man is brief man is brief. These two realities fit very well together, especially at the beginning of this prayer. And why do I say that? Because perspective gives you clarity. Perspective gives you clarity. Truth changes everything. And because before you list your grievances before God, before you say, give me this and give me that, before you sit there and kind of crowd the stage with your needs, before you feel entitled to negotiate, with the Lord about what you believe is the right path for your life, it might be good to follow the practice of Moses and first align your priorities to reflect on the bigger picture of life before you go too far. And what is that bigger picture of life? There will always be God, and there won't always be you. There'll always be God, and there won't always be you. And to say it more theologically accurate, God is transcendent, but you are transitory. Yes, you will live forever in eternity. Yes, you will always exist in your resurrection body, either in heaven or in hell. But in regards to the passing nature of our day-to-day lives, we remember, God, you will always be, even when we are not. So no matter how successful you are in this moment or in your work interactions or your relationships with mo- others or your money, and no matter how horrible you are, in dealing with the issues of your family and the specifics of your life at this time of your life, Moses is saying here, regardless of the perspective, it all turns to dust. It all turns to dust and that it is God who does this change. He says it, you turn back man into dust. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O sons of men. The image here is one... Of all who have ever lived, one day will return to the dust from which we came. That we are but dust and that we are transitory and brief as our time on earth. And that God, you who gave life and who is eternal, turns back man to the dirt from which he came and ends his time on earth in death. It's you that does that, Moses says. You probably all heard the expression from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That exact phrase is actually from the Church of England's Common Book of Prayer, and it's used for burial services. However, the idea of returning to the dust and covering oneself actually even with ashes is in the Bible many times. Genesis 2-7 says about returning to the dust. By the sweat of your brow, God says, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return, Genesis 3-19. So within the context of biblical thought, dust is where humanity comes from, and dust is where humanity returns in death. God remains forever. God, of course, is the one that is stable. Man slips away. God gives life, takes life, and man is in the hands of God for his life. And then Moses says this, something that the Apostle Peter says in the second letter. He goes, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch... In the night. You see, God doesn't see one generation passing away the same that you and I see one generation passing away. God doesn't give life and then take life away with the same thought about it that we might have about it because how he views time. A thousand years in his sight are like yesterday to him. According to my research, a thousand years ago, this year, AD 1023, this is what happened. The Dom Church in what is now the Netherlands was severely damaged by fire and Bishop Elibald II begins construction of a new Roman-style church. Also, a thousand years ago this year, Agnes of Burgundy the third wife of William V, gives birth to a son who will become William VII in 1039. Once established as Duke, he will become known as the Eagle and the Bold. So what? That was a thousand years ago. Not only are those events unknown to us, but even if they were known, we'd go, who cares? It was a thousand years ago. But here's the point. All of those dates and events and births and deaths happened like they were yesterday to God. To God as if he was on the watch for the night shift and then the morning comes and it's gone. John Frame Theologian says time is itself a creation of God. That means that his relationship time is very different from ours. For us, time often passes too quickly for us to accomplish our purposes, or it passes too slowly to maintain our interest. We often fail to accomplish something because we didn't have enough time. But God does not depend on time that way. He always has enough time to accomplish his purposes, and he never has too much. Another way to put it is God is the Lord of time because he is the Lord of everything. He created. So we pass away, but God remains. And that shapes the thinking of Moses in a very profound way. Our time is gone, but let me end with this. The past week, as you probably know, we had two huge memorial services here at Grace Community Church. One was for an LAPD officer that had lost his life by being hit Uh, by an intoxicated hit-and-run driver going 110 miles an hour at 1 a.m. down Roscoe. And the other memorial service was for an L.A. County sheriff that had taken his own life on the same day that three other sheriffs had taken their life by committing suicide. Both services were packed with hundreds and hundreds of law enforcement men and women. Uh, they were, chiefs were there, members of the fire department and others. It was one of the most extravagant ceremonies that you would ever want to see with bagpipes and taps being played and flags being folded and presented to the family along with processionals and eulogies. And I think for all who were there, I was at both services if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the entire affair was extremely sad. There was no true hope expressed in any of the eulogies. There was no true substance in their remembrances. There was only the most awkward kind of recollection about their love of sports or their humor or some good idea they had or some silly thing that they did. But none of the eulogies, none of them saw the lives that had passed away as amounting to anything more than just dust returning to dust. However, one man who spoke, who shared the following poem, and I want to read it to you today because though the message is very simple, its meaning is important and it acts as a thoughtful conclusion to our time. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between the years. For that dash represents all the time they had spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. It's the time between the two. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for a time in your word and for this great psalm of Moses. Allow these two thoughts to go deep into our hearts, that you, O oh God, are forever, that you do not change, that you are eternal, that before all that was, you were, and that generations come and generations go. And for those of us that love you, our home is not this earth, Our home is you. And yet, let us also remember that we are passing, that each day is a whisper, is a mist that appears for a little while and then fades away, that we are all completely dependent upon you, completely needing you, and completely acknowledging that the way we live before you, loving you, worshiping you, is the dash upon our tombstone. And we ask that you would help us to make that dash profound for you, that we would live not for ourselves, but that we would live for you who came and lived and died for us, Lord Jesus. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.